Cities produce more than 60% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Big cities get a lot of attention, but most household emissions in the U.S. actually come from communities outside urban cores, making them critical players in climate mitigation and climate justice. City Climate Corner explores how these small and mid-sized cities are tackling climate change and moving toward an equitable and sustainable future. I'm Abby Finnis. And I'm Larry Kraft. We're co-hosts for City Climate Corner. Hey, Larry. Hey, Abby. Welcome home. Where have you been? Thank you. It's good to be home. I have been in Germany for a bit over a week. And this is with a delegation of other legislators, commissioners, and other folks from the private community on a clean energy climate exchange that happens with the German government. It's been happening with folks in Minnesota for about the past 10 years. And I think you've been on one of these in the past, too. I've been on two of these in the past, yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, we saw folks in the North Rhine-Westphalia region. We started out in Dusseldorf and then went to Saarbeck, which was really cool. For a community of 7,500, the stuff they're doing is just amazing. And then we were in Munster, and then we finished up in Berlin. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty great little tour. Yeah, Saarbeck is an incredible example of what you can do when you don't see barriers. They took over an army ammunition site from the federal government and turned that into basically a renewable energy generation site. And so they've got solar, they've got a couple anaerobic digesters, they've got wind. And now they're making hydrogen too. Now they're making hydrogen. Why not? (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, when I was there, I think they were exporting over 300% of the energy they use. That sounds about right. Yeah, it was great. And there's 7,500 folks doing just some great stuff. I will tell you this, Larry, I don't know if you know this, but the solar on residential homes in Zarbeck, what they did is had students go to each house and tell them what their solar resource was and ask them if they wanted to participate in solar. And I think they have something like 25% of homes that have solar on their roof. It is very familiar (laughs) because I took that idea, brought it to St. Louis Park, and we did a similar thing. We did. Boy, gosh, that was like four or five years ago now, Mm -hmm. wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a great trip. And not only in Sarbeck, but in these other cities to see the infrastructure they have for biking and pedestrian and scooting and e-bikes, just so easy to get around. We sometimes used public transport, but often just grabbed a scooter or an e-bike from around the corner and went to our meetings or I went off and swam in the morning with a couple of folks on, on bikes. It was just fantastic. Yeah. What was your favorite part? My favorite part? Well, probably Sarbeck and just the scale of things that they're doing. But I tell you, we also saw some pretty interesting recycling stuff going on. And we toured this massive recycling composting facility that's recycling everything from batteries to plastic to animals that die. And it's pretty incredible. Nice. Well, from what I recall, my favorite city was Munster, just Mm. because of the biking and transit access which leads us to today's episode. What are we talking about? We're talking transportation emissions with RMI. Let's do it. Let's do it. Today, we are speaking with Anna Zetklik and Miguel Moravik of RMI. Welcome to City Climate Corner, Anna and Miguel. 
why don't you start by introducing yourselves and tell us about your roles at RMI. And Anna, let's start with you. Thank you so much for having us. I'm Anna Zakulik. I'm a senior associate at RMI. My work is mainly focused on land use planning as a climate action strategy and as well as an equity realization strategy. In addition to looking at transportation investments, how to shift away from private car travel to support active and shared mobility. Oh my gosh, I love it. Miguel. Hey, good morning. Uh, great to be on the City Climate Corner. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name again is Miguel Moravic. I'm an associate at RMI and I help lead our America is All In Coalition. If you haven't heard of that, it's the country's largest grouping of cities, businesses, nonprofits, you name it, organizations who are all in on taking climate action. I was uh, presenting to our Minnesota members, actually, about transportation policy when I met Larry. That's right. And maybe can one of you give us a bit more background on RMI for folks that might not be familiar with the organization? Yeah, we are a think scale do tank, which we adopt that moniker because we're very deep in climate research uh, and what can be done for just energy transition. But we also work with industry, with government offices, all scales of government, community-based organizations, grassroots groups to do both the, the low-hanging fruit for climate action and the really hard to move things to get carbon out of our systems. About how large is RMI? Ooh, we grew a lot. Uh, I think we are... On the track to 700 people, we work in the U.S., India, China. Those We have offices based there, but we are also in Southeast Asia, Nigeria, several other African countries, Europe. And yeah, it's changed a lot since its founding, which was very bootstraps. That's a great history, but I won't. <laughs> yeah, wow. I didn't realize that much. I mean, I've known RMI for a while, but didn't have that full. That's great. The short version is that it started in Amory Levin's house uh, over in Colorado a long time ago, just a few folks. And I think in the last decade, we've more than doubled in size. So it's been rapid growth for sure. And, and that's good. There's businesses booming for climate action. So one of those kind of hard to get at pieces of the emission sectors is transportation, which is what we want to focus on today. Uh, so Anna, could you give us kind of a high level look at the general state of transportation emissions in the U.S. and why it's so important to focus there? Yeah, of course. Hit the nail on the head. It is really hard to decarbonize the sector because of a lot of things. One is just our, our regime of how we travel. My own focus is on everything we can do to avoid and shift emissions. So how do we take people out of private cars when the option is there? We know about three in five urban trips that are made within cars are less than five miles. So could very feasibly be done with mass transit, active mobility, but either the safety isn't there or the infrastructure isn't there to make that choice. When it comes to movement of goods, that option is also there. So we could be moving goods at the metro regional scale outside of fossil fuels. Electrification of transportation is just an amazing scale that has happened over the last 10 years. It isn't everything. We know that we're doing that alone won't meet our ultimate climate goals. So RMI research uh, about two years ago looked at what we needed to stay on track to 1.5 degree scenario, so our Paris Climate Agreement, by 2030. Because we know 2030 is the marker that makes 2050 happen, the full net zero of all of our, our sectors. We project that 70 million electric vehicles need to be on our roads by 2030, new electric vehicles. But at the same time, we need a 20% reduction in our VMT, so vehicle miles traveled. And the reason those things are so connected is if we are continuing to just increase how much we drive, and that goes for people and goods, then we can't electrify fast enough. And at the same time, there's this positive feedback loop that 
if we can reduce the amount that goods and people move, electrification goes that much farther. We don't need as many batteries. We don't need the demand. I really want to underline what Anna was just talking about. I mean, to be clear, transportation is the largest source of climate pollution in the United States, more than the power sector, more than industry. It's transportation. And as Anna mentioned, we're decarbonizing at a far slower, the transportation sector at a far slower pace than other sectors. So if you want to talk about lowering emissions, if you want to talk about meeting climate targets, our driving habits and our car-centric city planning have to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit more and talk about the relationship between land use and vehicle miles traveled. So you're saying, you know, we need to do some of these things, but what are some of those decisions that have been made that contribute to higher vehicle miles traveled in communities? They happen at all scales, really. We have a pretty advanced budget for transportation infrastructure and just the regime of how we do a lot of our spending on transportation is to build things. So highways are the biggest example. Wherever we have hit this road of congestion and we need to fill that, we expand it and we create another lane. And that costs a lot of money. There's a lot of carbon associated with that infrastructure itself. So the cement within the roadways, but at the same time, it induces demand. So we have a pretty healthy body of research that says seven to 10 years, we've induced as much travel as we had at the start. So we're kind of fueling this problem. And the other side of this is locking in land use. Miguel? Do you want to? Sure. I just want to double click on the highways conversation. So RMI, uh, in partnership with the Georgetown Climate Center, did a study of what the impacts would be of the bipartisan infrastructure law on emissions. And what we found was that if state DOTs, which receive these billions of dollars of new investment, if they spend it like they traditionally do on projects that increase vehicle miles traveled like highway expansion, the associated increase in emissions from the new VMT would more than undo the positive benefits of all of the climate-friendly transportation policies that we discussed. It would dwarf those climate-friendly policies in terms of additional new emissions. So the takeaway on the highway conversation is that we cannot hit our climate goals at all, even with electrification, unless we take serious interventions to expand clean modes of transportation while aligning those transportation planning processes that Anna was talking about, while aligning those processes with climate targets. And there's a huge opportunity to do so with land use and VMT reform that I think Anna was just about to speak to. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for speaking the RMI ethos, Miguel, so well. The federal DOT doesn't have as much of a role to do, but it's certainly the case that state and local governments have a responsibility to, is to look at their land use plans and embed them within their climate action plans and vice versa. If we have systems that keep density artificially low, and that's kind of a wonky term, really it's just about diversity of housings, diversity of building heights, diversity of rental and purchase options within U.S. cities, then we can also dwarf any other investment to bring active and shared mobility to those areas. We know that about 70% of U.S. cities are enforcing exclusionary zoning policies. So just single family detached homes where there's this wealth of amenities, there's parks, there's schools, there's transportation options. And that's causing a lot of harm in a lot of ways. One is clearly the emissions. So we're not making the most of where our shared and active mobility infrastructure is because we we don't have enough housing. We don't have different price options for that housing within metro regions. We know there's clear equity implications to this. It makes housing affordability that much harder to achieve. 
because we're keeping our supply low. We're pushing or kind of seeding any organically affordable housing out to suburbs. We're pushing development there. And you can really see it. So where do you think most of the townhome developments are happening in your area? It's kind of on the periphery. There's some examples where it's happening in downtowns because we're using land use reform to allow this diversity of options. But if we don't see the correlation between where people can be and the infrastructure we create for climate-friendly transportation infrastructure, again, we've we've lost sight of the goal and, and taken ourselves off that trajectory. So I think that's great information. You talked about exclusionary zoning. Are there other decisions in zoning, other policies around like lot sizes and parking and stuff like that that contribute to this as well? Absolutely. That doesn't just go for what we do that takes us off that trajectory. It's what we need to do to stimulate private sector and public sector to build the right things. So there's a lot of good research that broad upzoning is kind of what it takes to see a change quicker in terms of creating more housing options. Broad upzoning means that at some level, we have to be creating or easing restrictions, deregulating systems the private sector is just built for. And that means kind of doing it all. Political capital is always kind of small when it comes to doing land use reform, but also where change has been seen, it's because we've pulled all these different levers. Deregulating parking. Now that you've legalized accessory dwelling units, you don't have to provide them a parking unit. A great example that comes to mind is the case of Buffalo, New York. So uh, just 10 years ago, Buffalo, the downtown is stagnating, the population is declining and expected to keep declining. But in 2017, the city adopted a new green code. What did that green code do? Number one, it expanded mixed-use development opportunities to allow developers to come in and take advantage of buildings that were otherwise not being used at all. And number two, it removed all parking minimum requirements. Anna, what's your sales pitch for parking minimum requirements? I want to make sure that's defined for the view, the audience. Let the developer decide. Oh, I was, I was just going to add a lot of the, the parking minimum standards were developed arbitrarily back in the 1950s, not really informed by research. And along your line of argument, Anna, just trust the developers. They have the resources to figure out what they need. So as a result of being a first mover on removing parking minimums and expanding mixed-use development, Buffalo has since seen a massive revitalization of its downtown. Uh, The mayor, Brian Brown, uh, said, quote, perhaps the most visible sign of Buffalo's changing fortunes are its new apartments, which turn up in empty warehouses, former municipal buildings, and longtime parking lots that are now converted into much-needed housing, end quote. And just to put some figures on that, what Mayor Brown is talking about is 10,000 new apartments in downtown Buffalo, which represent $3 billion of new investment. So a conclusion to the story, instead of a population decline, Buffalo has now seen a population increase, the largest it has since the 1920s. And that's great. That's more revenue for city planners to keep meeting the public need and providing public services. And I know this is sort of a spoiler, but uh, Larry just authored a law where uh, parking reform was absolutely an encouraged uh, mitigation option. Exactly, Miguel. You underlined two big things there. One, reducing the amount of surface parking that has to be out there made space for different redevelopment options. But it also really brought down the cost of building those, those buildings. So we saw a lot of more affordable housing units pencil out because they didn't have to dedicate space to parking. That same application of different policies working together, reducing lot sizes, reducing building height minimums, making it that much more likely that 
different plex sizes can pencil out. In Minneapolis, there's this really well known for being the first city to to end exclusionary zoning at the city scale. But the permitting, the, the data that's come out of it so far is it's not the huge uptick that the city wanted to see for different types of building. And how they're responding is to just appreciate what other many options are, are on the table for us to be that much more likely that, that developers respond, that community land trusts see this opportunities for them and create more diverse housing. City of Memphis looked their building code and their fire code, what were within those regulations that were preventing smaller housing options. So they looked at their street sizes, if their streets could be a little thinner so that developers could put that much more housing at different sizes. Looking at things like how much yard had to be a, a part of the property, being able to compensate with green space that the city owns adjacent to housing, just looking at things at a more macro scale so that cities can do those micro things in terms of housing. These kind of things, what applicability do you think it has? I mean, certainly you talk about Minneapolis and that's a little bit of a larger city, but these things also decisions relevant for maybe a suburb or a smaller city that's 50 to 100,000. Can they see some of the same benefits? Absolutely. One, suburbs don't exist in a vacuum. Metro regions are full of suburbs, and if city and their adjacent suburbs don't see themselves as a system, then they could be putting regulations that ripple into the other jurisdictions. So one of the biggest problems with putting land use reform into a climate action strategy is because climate action strategies tend to happen at the jurisdiction level. So City of Austin has a DMT reduction goal of 20% within their climate action plan, but most of their trips are happening outside of the city of Austin in when it comes to commuting. So if Round Rock doesn't talk to Austin when they're thinking about their housing plans, then they could be negating each other. Exclusionary zoning especially is something that has very big ripple effects. When it comes to what also often get called is retrofitting the suburbs, um, people want to live in suburbs too. There's a lot of great amenities. There's school systems, there's park systems. If we don't create diverse housing options within suburbs, we're also not making the most of the transportation investments there. There's always that trade-off that suburbs will increase VMT or decrease VMT, depending on what their built environment already looks like. But if we don't see those as interconnected systems, and again, we miss our goals. Yeah. What kind of examples do you have where suburbs might work together or work regionally? Because, you know, there may be suburbs that are concerned about putting these restrictions in place because the neighboring suburb doesn't have it and they might get the development. So what are what are some ways that they could maybe work together or work with regional entities to address these land use issues? I think the best example I can give is how Pittsburgh runs their climate action plan. They have, I think, about the 12 adjacent jurisdictions as part of that system. So what decisions does the city of Pittsburgh make that would affect them and vice versa? A great example that Pittsburgh gives is the city itself has been shrinking for a few decades, but they're actually seeing a lot of growth in their exurbs. So why have they ceded a lot of that development to outside the city when most of the jobs and the amenities are within the urban core? Asking that question and making that climate action plan happen at the metro regional level as opposed to the city's jurisdictions have been able to achieve things like looking at their zoning, looking at their mobility system, expanding their transportation system so that it's working with the suburbs, collecting data at the metro regional level to understand where those commutes are happening, who's being left out from those commute systems. And again, seeing that at the macro scale. 
Yeah, I think that it's a really important point to think about that at the macro scale. And yet a lot of the local authority resides with the entity. Are there different tips? What are some of the strategies that you would suggest for some of these smaller communities, whether even, you know, suburban communities or even regional economic centers in more rural places? On the whole, they're not too different. Just deregulating what you can build so that you're allowing a diversity of housing options isn't exclusive to cities by any means. Suburban communities often have downtowns as well. They have main streets. They have options where if you are living within that those daily commutes near a market, near your job, near a park, you can have the same VMT as what you would get in a downtown city. A lot of the reason RMI looks at state government as where land use reform can occur is because it kind of takes that decision-making at the state level to see that upzoning happen in real time, to see the built-in private sector respond. We're taking a quick break to say if you like what you're hearing, please support us via a tax-deductible contribution at the Support Us link on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. You can also become a monthly supporter and get a cool gift by going to the Patreon link, which is the P in the social media menu in the top right of that webpage. Thanks. So beyond kind of regulation, what are some other strategies that cities can utilize to reduce emissions, not just VMT, but maybe kind of hand in hand? There are so many levers to pull to reduce transportation emissions, uh, especially beyond just thinking EVs. So one strategy is transit expansion and service improvements. You could go to micro-mobility, looking to make sure you have the infrastructure to accommodate e-bikes and bike sharing. You can go even further and start talking about infrastructure improvements like roundabouts and other infrastructure that reduces conflict intersections and idling which is one of the dirtier forms of being in an automobile. So that's just a few of the transportation levers available. Anna, do you have any to add? Yeah, we can price things differently. If we provide all this free parking, we're just inducing, we're incentivizing having a private vehicle. We're losing space within our cities that we could be giving to that active mobility infrastructure. It doesn't make sense. We price everything else. So why would we create this free amenity that only serves people with passenger vehicles? This is especially true on highways as well, where some states like New York are leading the way in incorporating a congestion pricing in downtown New York City to give a fair value to the congestion that is reflected live on roadways. And that's not to say that's an easy thing to do. Anytime a pricing conversation happens, oof, the drama that happens within city council meetings, even at the state level, we know California is the only state that has tried to touch pricing parking at the state level. It took years to align coalitions into the right policy and get action there. Electrification is also out there for cities. And a lot of the research we do within RMI is showing that interconnection, reducing the amount we drive at the same time that we clean those trips that are left. E-bikes, uh, Miguel brought them up. It's not just creating the infrastructure for them, but you know, rebate systems have been really successful across the country. Denver is probably the best known example. They sold out their e-bike rebates in about seven minutes the first time they put it out. And I think it was about the same amount of time in the second rollout. They had equity indicators as well. So about 50% of the people who uh, received the e-bike rebate were below medium AMI for the city. They used that as a database. So they found that the rebate receivers who were below the 50% of AMI, we're using their bike about twice as much. And that says a lot of things. One, 
that they really needed it for their commutes. But at the same time, they weren't being served by other forms of infrastructure. So there wasn't the mass transit and there wasn't other opportunities within their neighborhoods to travel on their own. E-car sharing systems are really coming back. When I was in college, Zipcar came and it was before Uber, it was before Lyft, and it was a hugely useful to myself for getting around within a city that didn't have great mobility options. You know, they've sort of fallen out of fad. There's been this movement to really come back on the private sector, but also on the public sector. Minneapolis's Our Car is a really successful car sharing program that doesn't attempt to pencil out. So it's been kind of successful because the city sees it as an amenity to its users, as opposed to something that it is in the, the black. One more thing I got to add to while we're bringing up vehicles and electrification again, building codes. Building codes are a huge opportunity for cities of any size to take leadership on climate action and do things like require certain multifamily or large residential buildings have EV ready circuitry. If you're not familiar with the term EV ready circuitry, it doesn't necessarily mean going through the capital expenditure of installing a bunch of chargers, but it does mean that while you're building, a new office or apartment, whatever it may be, while you're building it, you pre-install the circuits to allow for the later installation of a charging unit. And there's a huge cost savings by putting the circuitry in during the construction phase rather than retrofitting or renovating a building later in its life. So cities have the option to adopt the, you know, the state's most aggressive building codes. And our analysis has been very supportive of the cost savings of putting EV readiness as a requirement for new construction up front, rather than a afterthought that balloons into a larger cost later in the life of a building. Yeah, I like that energy code thing. It's interesting though, we've learned that some places like Minnesota, we can't do anything more aggressive than the state's building code, unless we're being asked to do something special by a development. Maybe it's public financing, maybe it's a special zoning thing. Those are cases when we can make those requests, and we, we generally do. So even if you're in a city that you're precluded from doing something different than the state, if you're doing something special for a developer, then you often have a bit more flexibility. I want to start shifting a little bit to something, Miguel, you were hinting at earlier, which is, and both of you were talking about the impact of highways and induced demand by increasing lanes. And there are a couple of states that are doing things here to address them, Colorado and Minnesota. And so can you talk a little bit about that, about what Colorado started doing and why that's interesting to you? Yeah, Larry, I'd be happy to take that one. And basically, I'm going to start by discussing the Colorado Greenhouse Gas Planning Standard. So a little bit of context. Back in 2019, Colorado enacted legislation saying, hey, statewide, we want to hit climate targets. Well, then they realized it's really hard to make that kind of goal actionable without specific directives. So they went one step further and took a sector by sector approach. For transportation, Colorado adopted a new regulation that requires their agencies and metro areas to one, set targets for greenhouse gas emissions by region for transportation, and then two, shift investments into clean transportation projects and land use reform until those regional targets are met. So this may sound wonky, but it had a huge impact in Colorado. It moved over a billion dollars away from planned highway expansions and shifted that money into clean projects like five new bus rapid transit routes and $900 million of new multimodal infrastructure. So this is policy that's more than just flowery language about climate change. It's actionable. 
And Larry, this is all probably sounding familiar because you just authored a law that did something very similar in Minnesota, right? Yes. And I was uh, so excited. Thank you again for having RMI come and testify about the potential benefits of that. The Minnesota law, in addition to having these tractable climate targets for large transportation projects like highway expansion, Minnesota actually went one step further and also requires MnDOT, the state transportation agency, to incorporate VMT reduction targets into its planning process. That's along with the climate goals. And if uh, you have a transportation project that still exceeds the targets, the included mitigation options, you're required to take mitigation actions. And those mitigation options include a lot of the things we've been talking about on the podcast today. That's land use reform. That's parking management, transit expansion, all things proven to reduce emissions while making cities a more desirable and affordable place to live. And Miguel, you did some financial analysis, or I did some financial analysis on the benefits of this approach of en- enabling MnDOT to hit the VMT reduction targets. Can you kind of give an overview of the savings that we could potentially see? Because I found that just astonishing. I would be very happy to do that. So our RMI analysis found that Minnesota would see $91 billion of benefit between now and 2050 if they achieve the 20% per capita VMT reduction. The three things I'd really like to highlight from that analysis is number one, as Larry refers to it, the green little secret of climate policy is that there are so many co-benefits. So yes, there are huge climate benefits and reduced damages to real estate and agriculture, but our analysis showed that there's monetary benefits from having cleaner air, from having reduced injuries and fatalities from crashes. These benefits are real and they're common sense reasons to go forward with the policy, even if you didn't care about climate. Number two, the second thing I want to highlight from the analysis is that the benefit, it applies to everyone. The average Minnesotan household would save up to $500 by 2030 just from reduced costs on gas and maintenance alone if the VMT target is met and you could take more convenient modes of travel to basically one in five of your trips per week. And that makes sense if you think about it. Less trips in passenger vehicles translates to less congestion, less pollution, and of course, more savings. So third, the last thing from the analysis that I want to highlight today is just that the magnitude of the benefit is enormous. $91 billion of savings by 2050 makes for an average annual benefit of $3 billion per year. For scale, that is larger than the state of Minnesota's entire coal and natural gas market in 2022. And if you're skeptical of the size of these savings, it's not just us at RMI who are pointing it out. Look at the American Lung Association. They just released a report last month that there would be not 90, but 900, $978 billion of public health benefits if the nation, the United States, hits zero emission cars and zero emission electricity by 2035. And the way they get to these numbers is by looking at, hey, All this electrification will prevent about 90,000 deaths from occurring, 2.2 million fewer asthma attacks. And if you add that all up, it's 10 million fewer lost workdays if you achieve these zero emission targets in transportation and electricity. So just to wrap it all up and conclude, what our analysis really says is when you get serious about evaluating productivity, about evaluating public health, and yes, even climate impacts, There's a very clear imperative to to take action, unlock these financial benefits, and decarbonize transportation systems now. 
I will just note that as you're discussing kind of the additional benefits there, I got an air quality alert pop up on my computer and the air quality alert is not from wildfire this time. It's actually ozone coming from the Chicago and Milwaukee regions up to the Minneapolis, St. Paul region. And so right there is a tangible example of the real need to get these exhaust vehicles off the road. hundred percent. The other thing is talked about all these financial savings and like part of it is also like there's less people dying from cars. But the other thing is if you think about a city or state where you're out of your car more often, which means you're biking or walking or taking transit, you're interacting with people in your community more. There's a community building benefit to this. I say sort of tongue in cheek, but there's road rage, but you don't really hear about sidewalk rage. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I think this stuff is great. So I think to close it up, what advice do you both have for cities wanting to tackle transportation emissions? I'll go ahead and start with a a shameless plug. Stay in touch with the America's All In Coalition. We have a website, americasallin.com. If you as a city official representative go up and press the big green join button at the top right, it is free to join and you'll get regular access to our newsletter, which has all of our RMI research. It has advocacy opportunities. And most importantly, Just like City Climate Corner, it has more real life stories from peer cities to inspire and inform your community's path to climate action. So check out America's All In. And thanks so much for having us, Anna. Yeah, I think we outlined a lot of policies that cities can choose. I'll just put a plug for coalition building between cities and metropolitan planning organizations. So where I've been most impressed by what cities have been able to do on decarbonization is just taking a carbon budget approach to your city, having every major investment you put out there. And that that isn't just true for transportation, but we'll take the transportation sector and see what it does for emissions. Is this inducing demand? Is this going to take away from a very limited amount of carbon that each of us, not just each of us, but every kind of scale of government needs to be looking at if we're going to meet our goals? I did want to disagree with you a little bit. I'm from New York City. We do have pedestrian sidewalk rage. It's it's fun. <laughs> but that doesn't mean okay. community building can't happen. And I, just just one other benefit out there that we know active mobility has a huge financial piece in there when it comes to what it means for a, a higher quality of life for not being so dependent on healthcare systems. There's some great studies looking at that specifically because it's a benefit that we haven't fully appreciated. And if we saw that within that system as well, carbon budgets are one thing, but like looking at the health scale of what these things do for one another and the financial implications to government systems if act mobility was incentivized and the first indicator of whether or not a project pencils out. Great. Well, hey, thank you both so much. This has been super interesting. Thank you for having us. Abby, Larry, thanks so much. Great to be with you all here. So Abby, what do you think? What were your takeaways? I think the biggest one that is probably true of any episode that talks about emissions reductions is just all the added benefits from reduced costs, whether it's reduced costs of infrastructure, whether it's reduced costs for the individual of not needing to own and maintain and pay for gas for personal vehicle use as much. It's the health benefits, whether it's active living and being more healthy to just breathing clean air in our urban environments. And maybe also to not being dead. Yes. Um, I, yeah. And yeah, and accidents. You know, I think we don't 
talk about it as much, but vehicles just through what we call accidents, crashes, account for nearly as many deaths in this country as guns do and don't have that same stigma, I think, because most Americans drive and kind of block that. And so uh, I think that that's something very real that needs to be taken into account as well. Yeah. I often say we put up with so much pain for being as car-centric as we are. And as we shift to being a bit less car-centric, and I'm under no illusion that we're going to be not car-centric in the U.S. anytime really soon. But as you talk about, there are so many benefits. And even talk about revitalization of towns and community building and that kind of thing too. Yeah. No, I love the example of Buffalo and what they've been able to do just through kind of changing their regulation and land use to helping to revitalize the community. Yeah. I also am very interested in this concept of, they called it upzoning, where you make it so that, you know, we've had this, you know, zoning is such a long history of and origination and racial exclusion, but being able to allow more than just single family zoning everywhere, you know, dual or quad, which Minneapolis did, but I think Washington State just did it statewide, which I think is so many benefits. But it's also, if you think where we're going and where we need to keep emissions down, it's a way of increasing density in an intelligent way. And there are benefits from emissions to less sprawl, less taking farmland out of production, all kinds of things. Yeah, I think, you know, whether it's kind of statewide or that that regional approach tends to make a lot more sense than just kind of one-off cities, but we do still need those cities to step forward and look at their regulation and how they might be inducing or how they could curb emissions based on some of their land use policies as well. Yep. The other thing that kind of stood out to me is, you know, we focus mostly on regulation and looking at different zoning policy decisions that cities can make, but there's also the example of the incentives and how quickly e-bike rebates went in Denver. Minnesota also included e-bike rebates in this last legislative session. I imagine those are going to go very quickly as well. And I think that if we incentivize the right thing, we can also make those major shifts from personal vehicle use. But we have to have the infrastructure ready to be able to handle it. You don't just want to give out e-bikes or help heavily subsidize e-bikes, then have a bunch of them and not have the good infrastructure for them to be able to ride safely on the roads with. Yeah, good point. And yet, interesting, since session and since we put all this stuff in place, I think I've gotten as many questions about the e-bike incentives as anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an appetite for it. Cars, trucks have been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but I do think there's a strong appetite for smaller, more convenient local transportation options. Love it. We hope you enjoyed this episode of City Climate Corner. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe and give us a review. If you're able, become a monthly supporter through Patreon. As always, you can find more information on this topic and resources from each episode's guests on our webpage, cityclimatecorner.com. If you have an idea for the show, send us an email at cityclimatecorner at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. City Climate Corner is produced by Abby Finnis and me, Larry Kraft. Edited by our content coordinator, Isaiah Eagles. Music by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.